0: Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. On One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Um, we spent the last few weeks together in the Gospel of Luke looking at the provocative meals of Jesus. Jesus loves food, he loves feasting, but he also knows there's a great power behind uh, the act of eating a meal. He uses meals to demonstrate something about himself, but often he uses meals to reveal the heart. He knows meals reveal the heart like nothing else. When I was thinking um, about the impact of food in my life, what came to mind actually was my wedding day. So 15 years ago, uh, I got married to the beautiful Philippa. And um, at our wedding, I guess I saw what my wife was really like. As we planned the wedding, um, usually what's in the heart comes out. And for Philippa, she was dead keen that we didn't have a posh sort of sit-down meal, but rather we had a buffet. Uh, which meant that we could invite loads and loads of people. And also it meant that we could invite a lot of her friends that uh, were homeless. Uh, She managed a night shelter. And so she had lots of people that she was working with that were underprivileged in a very, very difficult situation in life. She wanted to welcome them in. Um, There was a wonderful moment when one of her friends, Sheila, uh, managed to borrow a dress and uh, she came to the wedding with loads of her plastic bags and she came right to the front so she could have the best view and so remember getting married looking at Pip's mum and next to her was Sheila. (laughs) And Pittsburgh was very gracious about it all. And then at the end, uh, a lot of the guys that were sort of trying to come out of uh, of a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties, lots of sort of ex-addicts, they loved Philippa. So they really wanted to serve her and give her a great day. And so uh, one of the things we did was we sort of dressed them all up smart and we asked them to be our waiters and waitresses for the buffet. And somehow they sort of served drinks and all that sort of thing. And they did a fantastic job. So at my wedding, I felt I got a glimpse of what my wife was really like. And Jesus understands that when we eat and who we eat with, it definitely shows what's going on in the inside. I wonder if if we were to look at your eating habits in the last couple of weeks, maybe the last month, we may all be quite shocked. But I wonder if you just spend some time thinking about who you ate with And what was the purpose behind your meals? And who it was that you invited? And how did you act during those meals? And whether or not you invited people outside of this community? I wonder what you would find. What Jesus does in this particular meal in Luke 14 is that he notices that if in any way we are concerned for position or status or value or approval, then it will be revealed in our dining etiquette. And so simply put, in this meal, he wants to do these two things. He wants to, next slide, he wants to expose pride and encourage humility. Can you just turn to the person next to you and say the two things he wants to do? Great, you can sort of point at the person as well if you want and (laughs) accuse them. So two things you need to know uh, before we... You guys quite enjoyed doing that, didn't you? Um, Two things that we need to do before we dive into this story. Number one, can we just go to the next slide? Let's read this: one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So the scene is he's gone to a sort of famous religious teacher, and they've invited them, he, he, they've invited him there, and they are carefully watching him. That word there, uh, when it was originally written down, means almost to spy on Jesus. They want to catch him out, they want him to squirm. And the second thing you need to know about this story is that it's much more than just seating advice at a wedding. But Jesus is wanting to go a bit further and deeper. If we jump to the next slide, verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the place of honour at the table, he told them this parable. The author Luke wants to emphasise this. As you may know, parables always have a double meaning. They always have an underlining meaning. So there's a story, but then there's the real story underneath. And so when we read this, we've got to look for that real story underneath. And I hope by the end of tonight, we understand what that is. So what's going on here? What's going on in Luke 14? Well, to help us, I want you to pretend that we are at a wedding tonight. I'm officiating the wedding. You're the guests. Let's pretend there's an aisle down the middle. The bride is waiting to come in. Who knows who sits here to my left? Who should be here? The groom and the best man. On this side, the bridesmaids. And then probably sat on the second row to the left and right of the aisle. Who sits there and there? Parents. And then probably the next row back, you've got close family, grandparents, that sort of thing. Now, if you're sat sort of in the middle there, what are you to the bride and groom? You are? Friends, if you're right up the back, maybe still standing, what are you? Late, friends. Very good. You know that in, at weddings there is sort of like an etiquette of where you should sit. In English weddings, it's a real faux pas to sit in the wrong place. You even get asked on your way into a wedding, you know, whose side you should sit on. You're like, oh, I don't know, I like them both just as much. So there's there's a, there's certain rules there's certain rules and it's the same in biblical times. So next slide. Um, this is you need to use your imaginations a little bit with this slide. But the big U would be sort of the shape all the guests would make as they reclined. And so the X is where the host would go. And that's the prime position because by sitting at the top of the U, he'd be able to see all his guests and all his guests would be able to see him. And the more important you are, the closer to the host you would sit. And so there are clear cultural rules as to where you sit at a feast or at a meal. So listen, let's read this together. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. So Jesus he's saying when you go to a wedding don't sit in the wrong place he's saying don't be the fool who comes a little bit like late in the service everyone's sat down comes down the aisle and sits right near the front you know and he's sitting in the groom's grandma's seat and the ushers have to come down and stand him up and say mate you're sat in grandma's seat and she can't walk very well you actually overtook her as you came down the aisle <laughs> She can't see that well. She's a little bit deaf. And you're taking her seat, get up and go at the back. And she has to do the walk of shame back up the aisle. And by then, all the seats are filled. So you end up standing at the back. And every now and then, people look around at you and just sort of shake their head like, he's the guy trying to nick Grandma's seat. <laughs> Don't be the fool that do, does that. It's humiliating. What you want to be is you want to be the person up the back person says, Mike Vaux, Mike Vaux, you're sat at the back. What are you doing? You're like a really good friend. Come down the front. You can have the best seat. So Jesus is clearly saying that. But listen, what's the double meaning? What's the story under the story? Well, verse 11 is the punchline. For all those who, are themselves, who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this meal has a very, very challenging lesson. Jesus is saying, "The proud are humiliated, and the humble are honored." Turn to the person next to you and say, "The proud are humiliated and the humble are honored." And then say to them, "Which one are you?" <laughs> Do you know what was really funny? Shh, shh. What was really funny is Kate didn't actually say anything to Ollie. She just went. <laughs> didn't even give him the choice. It's like, I know who you are. God's plan. Sorry, guys. Sorry. God's plan A for you. God's plan A for you is humility. And if you do not go with plan A, then God's plan B is humiliation. You are going to learn the lesson either way. And let me gently submit to you that plan A is better than plan B. Now some of you might say, well, actually, I want a seat at the table. I want to have influence. Some of you are working hard, studying hard in order to have an impact on the world. You want to have that place at the table. Jesus would say to you, that's not a problem. The question is, how do you hope to get there? How do you hope to get there? Is it through pride? Is it through pushing? Or is it through humility and honouring? Jesus doesn't mind if you get a great seat. The question is, have you taken it or has he given it to you? And it's very convicting this because this is a warning parable. This isn't Jesus meek and mild. He is warning us that there is a better way humility is knowing our place and here's the truth about our place we are finite beings we do not know everything we're created we're not equal to God God made us we're under God and we also are fallen the Bible says we're selfish we're sinful we're proud we're foolish and we deserve hell not heaven we deserve judgment not mercy and knowing that if that is your starting point then it allows us to gladly accept the place that God gives us, knowing that helps us understand the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We cannot save ourselves, knowing that means that we understand we bring nothing to the table. Just to be invited is all down to God's grace. All we must do in this life is accept the invitation to sit with him. You know, pride is an ugly, evil thing. Uh, John Stott, who was a very famous Christian author, he said this, he said, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. It's our enemy because the Bible is full of the destructive consequences of pride. Isaiah 14 talks about the downfall of a king, but it's actually also referring to the rebellion and fall of Satan himself. Isaiah 14 says this, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High. So even though we believe that the devil was given great, Glory and great power and great beauty and position—he still desired more. He wanted equality with God, and consequently, he's dealt with quickly and severely. Why? Why does God hate pride? Well, C.J. Mahaney, another Christian author and pastor, he says this: Pride is when sinful human beings aspire the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on Him. Psalm 10 verse 4 describes it well. In his pride the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. That's what pride does. Shuts out God. Says there's no room for you. It's about self-glorification. It's putting yourself on top of the pile. We exist for God's glory, not our own. Yet what pride does is it puts us, if you imagine life is like a bit of a pyramid, it puts us right on the top and everything else flows from it. So we're built to glorify God and to serve others. But on top of the pile, we just want people to serve us. We want to be glorified in life. And it's not how we were made. If you ever went into a hall of mirrors as a kid or you saw, you know, those mirrors that are all distorted. and You look at and you see yourself in a different shape. Well, what pride does is blow us up out of all proportion. It's about self-glorification. It's becoming bigger in our, in our own eyes, especially in comparison to anybody else. Jesus says the proud will ultimately get humiliated to humble them. So best thing to do is to choose the humble route. So listen, really tough question this. How do you you know if you are proud? Because my experience is, for those of us that are most proud, it's it's our pride that stops us seeing the pride. You know, we, we are very good at spotting it in other people. So how do you get to see it in your own heart? Well, let me ask you five questions tonight. Number one, do you have a hard time acknowledging that you are wrong? Like no one's allowed to nudge anyone with their elbows as I ask these questions, just so you know. But do you have a hard time, like in your friendships, in your relationships, maybe at work or at home or wherever it might be? Is it hard to admit that you're at fault? Do you hardly ever reveal weakness do you hardly ever confess sin does it take things to be really really bad or for others to call you out on certain stuff do you very rarely offer what's really going on in your life this is king david's sin in the old testament as he arranges for a man to be murdered he hides his sin he covers up proud people need to keep up appearances to compete with others Proud people don't want to apologize because they think it weakens their position or gives power to those they actually want to have control over. Um, This may shock you a little bit, but I hope my honesty helps. And about a year ago in the city centre, I was cycling through a car park. And as I cycled past a guy, um, uh, he called me a really horrible name and my guess is for him, he thought I was either cycling too close to him or too fast. And as he called me that name, I slammed on my brakes, sort of almost threw my bike down, and I got off my bike and I said, what did you just call me? And i tell you, what was behind that question was my pride. It was, who are you to say that to me? And it was a wrong thing for You know, wrong thing for him to say. He should never have said that. But it was my pride speaking. It was my pride that wanted to fight back. It was my pride that wanted to react and respond. And if you want to know what happened next, you can ask me later. Question two. Do you tend to tell lies or white lies? You see, beneath all our lie, or most of our lying, is actually pride. Because lying is usually you're going to know something about me that makes me look not as good as I want to look. It's going to cast me in some unfavorable unfavorable light. And so I will lie even if it's like a really, really small thing in order to keep up appearances, to try and pretend to be someone I'm truly not. Behind lying is pride. We lie to make ourselves look better. We lie To make other people look worse so we can look better in comparison. Are you someone that just doesn't tell the truth? Thirdly, do you always have to be first? Do you always have to win? Are you like super competitive? Always wanting to be the best at stuff? Do you cheat like at board games? Are you someone that does that? Like You just can't resist the sneaky slide of, oh, I'll take that card. You know, what are you like? Are you, you know are you someone that hates losing or put it a different way are you someone that just like overworks or overstudies I know that's hard to believe that some people do that but some people like have to give themselves to stuff because they're so scared of failing and what it will look like for those of you that drive like how do you drive like, do you drive in a way to always get there ahead of the person? Do you have, like, little races when you stop at the red light and you're like, I'm going to totally now this guy. Do you ever, on a motorway, you know, when you see, like, a lane is closing, sort of 800 yards, leg closing, and so all the polite people, they, like, go into the lane that's staying open. You're the one that bombs right up until the lane closes, and then forces your way in, and you get cross that people don't let you in. Rich, you're feeling the conviction, aren't you? I can tell. (laughs) Is the road yours? Is your time more important than everyone else's? Is the pride in you? Fourthly, do you tend more towards an attitude of entitlement or thankfulness? Are you the sort of person that says, I deserve that, I've worked really hard, I've sacrificed this, I've given this? Or are you thankful? Are you someone that says, you know what, I don't deserve any of this stuff. But God somehow graciously gives me the things that I have before me and whatever it is, I receive it with thankfulness. And fifthly, really cut into the chase, do you honestly feel you're just basically a good person and superior to others? Now, I totally understand. You'd never sort of put that on your Facebook account or something like that. Do you know where it says, tell us about yourself? And you put basically better than most or, you know, something like that. And it's like in a sense of smugness and superiority and perhaps you look down on people, perhaps you just feel smarter than people. I don't know, you just feel like most people are incompetent compared to you. You know, this was Naaman's sin in the Old Testament. He nearly missed out on God healing him from leprosy because he just felt he was above doing what Elisha told him to do, which was to bathe in the River Jordan. You know, Jesus is saying this stuff is evil, it's toxic, this is a warning. Honour is never something to be seized, it's something to be given. And this, you know, really helps us understand the story. You know, the strange story about the guy being healed on the Sabbath that happens in verse 2. Let's just read this again. There in front of him was a man suffering from a normal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. He asked them. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into the well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. So twice as Jesus comments on what's happening before him, twice the Pharisees and the teachers are completely silenced. Verse 4 and verse 6. What do you think Jesus is trying to do? What's Jesus doing? By silencing them he's exposing pride but how's he doing it? What do you think? He's embarrassing them, he's humiliating them. They have nothing to say. These are the guys that everyone goes to for Q&A. They're the ones that tell the people how they should live and Jesus silences You see, they thought they were earning God's approval by behaving as they did and having all these rules and regulations. They would rather work hard, saving an ox or saving a child on their day of rest, rather than taking pity and compassion on someone who was seen as unclean or as a sinner. And my guess is the whole thing was just a setup in order to catch Jesus out. And it, yeah, he saw it coming and he totally turns the tables on them. He asked them a question and none of them saw this question coming. And it was a brilliant, humiliating question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He's saying, is it OK if God heals people on the Sabbath? And there's two answers to that question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Number one, thank you, number one Yes, it is lawful, so yes, it's okay. And if they would say yes it is okay, then it would ruin the whole reason for inviting Jesus around, so they want to catch him out. But if they said the second answer, which no, it is not okay to heal on the Sabbath, then they would be putting their place themselves in the place of God, because only God could heal on the Sabbath. Who are they to say to God what he can and cannot do? So Jesus sees their pride and humiliates them. He's using the parable to explain how God works like that. So he humiliates them and then he tells a great story saying, this is what I'm doing right now. And my guess is the Pharisees didn't even see it happen. Because their pride stopped them from seeing their pride. What's going on? Well, the proud are humiliated and the humble are honoured. And it's a theme that goes all the way through the Bible, Proverbs 4, Sorry, Proverbs 3, James 4, and 1 Peter, verse 5. And listen, I I think there's very few people in this camp. But my feeling is, if you look at these five questions, and it's just not registering at all, or if you look at these five questions and think, wow, God has been doing a job on me on those things for quite a time you guys should walk away from tonight really encouraged, really encouraged, because you're choosing the humble route. But for those of us that were asked those questions, you're like, wow, that totally nails me. I know that I'm like that. The question we've got to move to quickly is how then, how do we become the humble people we know that God wants us to be? How do we take that, that first route? Well, let me give you three things. Number one, never presume. Humility doesn't presume the best uh, to be the best, to be first, to be the quickest. Humility never presumes in that way. Humility likes to take the smallest slice. Are you someone that takes the smallest slice? Are you someone that's happy not to go first? Are you someone that's happy to take the poorest seat? Leonard Bernstein, one of America's greatest conductors and composers, was once asked, what's the hardest instrument to play? And he replied without hesitation, second fiddle. Second fiddle. Everyone wants to play first violin, but it's the second one that brings the harmony. And in life, some of us just need to play second fiddle. We need to let others get the praise. Humility, you see, is marked by a trusting God to provide everything for us, not for us just to try and grab it and take it before someone else does. And if you truly trust God to provide for you in life, you never have to presume in that way. Secondly, don't just never presume, but never push. Humility never pushes. You see, most of what we do in life, uh, whether it's our relationships, our work, what we've given ourselves to, most of it just has a time that it takes. And trying to speed it up does not change it really that much. Most of us just need to let God do his thing. And for those of us that are Christians here, we know for God to really mature us, it's often a very deep and slow work. Change doesn't come overnight. It's deep and it's slow. So we shouldn't push in life. We shouldn't be driven. And we need to slow down because our busyness is the absolute enemy of humanity. Now listen, This all sounds very meek and mild, it all sounds like, no, no, you, 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 but being humble is just not about being weak, it's not about having a sort of poor self-esteem and thinking really badly of yourself. C.S. Lewis, another great writer, he says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a quite self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Why? Well, this quote is great because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. That's so helpful. It's not thinking more of myself, it's not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. And thirdly, never pretend. Humility doesn't need to pretend. Only those seeking to build an image need to pretend. And you know what, if we actually stop pretending, our relationships will go deeper than, you know, we'd hoped. Because we're really giving of ourselves. We're not presenting this image of someone we think other people will aspire to or want to know. You know, if you are someone who pretends, then you will rarely say, I don't know. And in Christian circles, our Christian culture is so funny. Especially if you're a leader or something like that. If someone says, oh, I was reading Psalm 16 verse 11. It really spoke to me." No, I know that. <laughs> and like you wouldn't say, oh, "I've got no idea what that verse is. Why, can you tell me?" Because you want to look like you know the stuff, and you want to. You know, it's embarrassing not to know that really famous scripture that everyone else seems to know. Don't be someone. Who pretends. You know, our relationships, especially in our accountability groups, they need to be marked by honesty and reality. And you know what i found over the years is I've like put myself out there and said, this is who I really am. People are very, very quick to accept me and love me and forgive me. Very quickly. And sometimes people abuse that position, but it's rare. Most of the time, people have just been drawn in Jesus' brother James says this in James 5, therefore confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Listen, humility isn't worried about presenting a certain image or faking it to be loved more by others, nor is it more about hating yourself so much that you hide yourself away. And I think I don't want to be too stereotypical, but normally this is the way a lot of women handle these issues. And so you may seem really quiet. You may seem that you never push. You may be someone that never seems to presume. But it's only because you actually have very low self-esteem. And it forces you to act like that. It's not humility that's going on. It's actually at the root of it is that you just don't like yourself very much and you're desperate for others to love you. So it's not coming from this place of I'm just going to prove it and often that's quite a masculine response. I'm going to be first, I'm going to be the best and you are gonna, you're going down. I am out on top and as everyone sees me out on top then I feel the pride growing. For a lot of women that's just not how it works. It's much more about just not feeling any sense of value. And so you look to others for that value. And as you receive the love from others, that brings pride. It doesn't actually help that much. Because you're going to the wrong people for that love and approval. Tim Keller, another pastor, puts it really nicely. He says this. Next slide, please. Uh, Oh, we've not got it. Can you just go back? Let me just tell you. He says this, A truly gospel, humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a self-forgetful person. It's not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a self-forgetful person. Remember, humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself, but thinking of myself less. So here's a little test. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly, by any sort of criticism. It wouldn't devastate them, it wouldn't keep them up late, it wouldn't bother them. Why? Because a person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what other people think and on other people's opinions. Mature humility is where we forget ourselves to the point where we cease caring what other people think and where even where we even fail to care what we think of ourselves. Instead, we rest and rejoice in what God thinks of us in Christ. How? Well, let me finish with this. The big lesson you need to learn is you will never be humble by trying to be humble. It just doesn't work like that. Humility is a byproduct of focusing on the most humble man in history which is Jesus Christ. It's a byproduct of doing that. So listen, Jesus never presumed. Verse 6 of Philippians 2, which is a worship song the Apostle Paul wrote about the humility of Jesus. Jesus never presumed, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus never pushed, verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And Jesus never pretended. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you know the result? The humble are honoured. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. You know, with the rest of our time, I want us to worship Jesus. I want us to fix our attention on him. It may be that you need to come with a repentant heart. You may need to come this evening and say, God, I'm so sorry. I see my sin. And you know what happens as we say sorry, as we repent and truly turn from the sin in our hearts, God is very quick to forgive us. And as forgiveness comes, liberty and freedom and joy tends to come. So we're going to start to sing and as we sing we're going to focus on the humility of Jesus and it might be you need to do a bit of work in your heart as we sing that song. So do you want to stand with me and let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for how you've spoken to us through Luke 14. And for those of us that still haven't heard, Lord, let your Holy Spirit open blind eyes. Lord, I pray there will be so much clarity tonight that the proud are humiliated and the humble are honoured. God, we want to say we're so sorry for not choosing your plan A. We're so sorry for the pride that's in our hearts. And we do repent, we turn from it. And as we do that, we know that you are a loving and forgiving God who takes our sin and scatters it as far as east is from west. And as we sing, Holy Spirit, do your work of change in our lives. And as we focus on Jesus, may we become more like him. In your name we pray. Amen.